All right, here we go. Living in a scientific age, we need citizens who know enough about science to make intelligent decisions about what they do. We use science to, to prolong life, to increase security and happiness. But it can also be used for destruction. Are we going to use it constructively? It'll be up to you, and you too. <sighs> the end of quite a week. <laughs> yes, it's, and the beginning of a new one. And the beginning of a brand new one. So this is uh, Sunday after the... Uh, 2020 election uh the election of elections and um wow what a what a ride it has been and i i tell you like tuesday i tuesday night after initial counts started coming in i got like genuinely like depressed that evening as i was just and it wasn't my guy lost and your guy won kind of depression it was that it was close um it be and and in my view and i know that there's others in the world that don't agree with this but in my view um to support the antics and uh the rhetoric and the uh, wild disenfranchisement and the lawlessness that we've seen of this president and his administration is abhorrent, and um, and it made me sad that that was happening. Uh, but um, yeah, hi Todd. <laughs> I kept waiting. Like, <laughs> there's no joke in that. Uh, no, I know, and and that's what I I kind of robbed myself of some of the. <laughs> emotional weight of that wondering where the turn was going to be <laughs> there wasn't I, I i queued up a joke uh, of like um what's what's uh brown and sm and sounds like a sneeze uh i don't know a shoe um, <laughs> and we're back and we're back um <laughs> But but the way was a cute joke. It, it was like very that. cute. That that's like a solid like five year old girl joke. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. And <laughs> as a matter of fact, my my buddy uh, my buddy Brett has a as a six year old girl, and I am gonna teach Emma that joke. That is okay. a great joke. A great joke. <laughs> but the uh, but the weight yes, yeah the weight of all the happenings seem to. Uh, uh, crowd my brain uh, and and to push that joke out for the moment so, so. <laughs> yes and well and I think I think we're all exhausted because not only is kind of today the day after you know some uh, the presidential news but of course today is the day that we've all been waiting for because finally I have zero copyright strikes against my RIP VHS channel oh so, so this after 
this was the one that the old guy had, and he said he would take it off, and then he yeah, didn't. Yeah, and I and just don't blah, think blah, 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 he could right? figure things out enough, and like he maybe tried but was too late or whatever. Right. But just a genuinely great man who owns Sky Fury Productions, which is a uh, he financed all these himself in the 80s and 90s of like air shows and different kind of airplanes and different kind of videos focusing on each one, you know, those typical grandpa videos you'd find at your grandpa's house and and so when i uploaded it you know it didn't have any any uh anything that flagged youtube else i you know else i don't post those if there's something like that and so i told him you know and explained what the channel was and all that and he was just super nice we went back and forth like 30 different times just chatting about stuff and (laughs) but i mean it, it never got lifted and like that was my fault anyway so whatever but i've been waiting it was a three month wait so finally yesterday it was lifted so uh, now i'm just waiting for the next one to drop but at least uh you get three strikes and you're out and i think this this time on my channel i've been able to figure it out a little bit better than on my first channel when i was a little bit more willy-nilly with how i posted things that i probably shouldn't have so anyway that's what america is really celebrating yeah yeah and um on the flip side um the sad news that we just got a hour or so ago is that alex Alex trebek uh has passed away of pancreatic cancer oh you and you had that as a as an item didn't you i did but yeah i didn't really have it was just more or less the headline so we might as well talk about that now yeah Yeah. um yeah great uh, a beloved american uh personality and and uh like yeah i wasn't a huge jeopardy watcher or or game show watcher other than the price is right kind of in the summers when i was a kid (laughs) but um never really watched jeopardy a lot but he's just such an integral part of our culture and and all of that i believe if i am i am maybe incorrect about this i'm gonna try to look it up but i think he also wrote the jeopardy theme song Oh, I, I vaguely remember you mentioning that before. The theme song. Let's look at this in real time. <laughs> um. Oh no, Merv Griffin was the oh. one who wrote the, Je- the oh, Jeopardy yeah. song. I was conflating the two. So Merv Griffin, the. Right. The uh, producer of that and many, 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 many other, other game shows, shows and stuff um, uh, wrote that. So that that was my confusion on that. My the error it goes on my on my track record. Where, uh, when did uh, Jeopardy begin? Oh boy, it was uh, Alex Trebek was not the original uh, host of it, um, um, but I'm not sure here. I didn't. I didn't really look up anything about that. Okay. But I know Alex Trebek uh, started uh, in the '80s uh, as the uh, took over as the host of that show. So it either started in the '60s or '70s. Wow. But yeah, it's been on American institutions. Th- yep. Yep. Um, anyway, anything else before we kind of get into some news? Um, I I don't think so. Oh. Okay, well, let's go to New Zealand, where New Zealand recognizes all animals as sentient beings. So New Zealand has set a great example that animal lovers have known forever. This is less than a a, a hard news story than a heartwarming <laughs> one, I guess. Um, blah, 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 blah. 
Uh, the Animal Welfare Amendment Bill, which passed in May of 2015, says this story from 2020, uh, stipulates it is now necessary to, quote, recognize animals are sentient and that their owners must, quote, attend properly to the welfare of those animals. So um, to say that animals are sentient is to state explicitly that they can have experiences both positive and negative emotions, including pain and distress, says the national, uh, the chair of the National Animal Ethics Advisory Committee. So I'm sure this is so um, so that if they can prosecute different crimes and, and claim neglect and, and kind of make uh, those processes a little bit easier to take care of the people who who are abusive to animals but i thought that was kind of an interesting yeah an interesting thing huh um google searches for liquor stores near me hit all-time highs americans watch election results come in so other pop popular search terms were liquor stores open near me right now and <laughs> wine near me uh searches for Anxiety broke a previous record on Tuesday, suggesting Americans are having a hard time keeping calm as the election comes down to the wire. The search engine's finding prompt Google to advise its users to check in with family and friends. <laughs> yeah. Did you uh, did you happen to catch Saturday Night Live last night? Or, or I far? didn't. I you know yeah. I fell out of the habit of watching it after you got rid of Hulu. <laughs> <laughs> so now we, we and they do well. I they I do post I don't think it all. They uh, put on yeah. Oh go ahead, go ahead. They put it on all yeah. They put it on YouTube the next day, but it's all kind of disjointed into different. Like they just extract the skits, which is fine. But I just like that experience of watching it all and I just sort of fell out of that but I really need to start uh catching up on that again yes um there so was, was the they the cold open was the part of it was the acceptance speech by uh, uh by Biden and uh Kamala Harris and Kamala was talking about um you know and and little girls of color your mothers are crying tonight because they're drunk <laughs> and, and then you know and then they will be laughing uh also because they're drunk uh and she, they will be laughing and crying and dancing uh, a lot mostly not because they're crazy but because they're drunk uh and uh and they're just talking about how uh how much liquor has been consumed over uh this last period of time it was, it was yeah that's funny well speaking of so it's been interesting uh to me this this kind of election process not just because it's you know it, it was insane just in general, but uh, Colin's older brothers, Devin and Michael, Michael is now 20 and Devin, wow. Devin is 17. And so Michael had never really been into politics or that much before, but Devin kind of in this last year and a half, as he's kind of, um, you know, gotten out of that early teenager year and, and starting into the late teenagers, just like really kind of deep dive into a lot of it and so um he was so upset that he couldn't vote this one because he's only he just turned 17 but kind of talking them through and then like having them see a ballot for the first time and the booklet that we get and like talking about all that stuff was super interesting to do kind of through and with the eyes of first-time voters and kids who are who grew up online and who are way more knowledgeable and passionate than any generation that's come before us. And so I kept telling him like people my age and older do not have an emotional vocabulary to talk about that stuff. 
because what the things you don't discuss politics and religion well guess what's tearing our country apart right now the things that we cannot talk about because we're not emotionally equipped and so right. i keep telling them you know we're going through a lot of like the last 10 years there has been just a tremendous amount of both political and cultural change some good some bad but it's just all part of that process that turmoil of the wave of what's coming next is churning up everything so it feels like chaos as we go through different processes but you know that is a good thing and eventually will lead but one thing um so uh, one of the measure ballot measures in Oregon was and I'd seen a bunch of ads on YouTube about it and they were all from doctors and law and law officials and police and all that and that was to uh, in Oregon to fund um, uh, rehabilitation instead of prison for drug offenses and which is something that I totally agree with I've benefited from treatment myself and know that uh, it's it can be uh, a tremendous help for people and obviously more helpful than just locking people up in in prison and so you know I voted in favor of that and and as the election results were coming in, there's really kind of two, only two big things for Oregon. I forget what the other one was now. The vape tax? The <laughs> Oh, no. They always screw smokers on that, so I didn't even look to see what the results of that is. So that'll be another two bucks that I get to pay for everyone. <laughs> What else? Um, but anyway, so that was one of the big uh, the big things on the ballot. And so all the news is coming in. And uh, oh, yeah, there I've already used my you're holding up the voters guide. I've already used mine for kindling, which is <laughs> always a satisfying part of the election process. Um, but all the news is like Oregon decriminalizes all drugs. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Who did that? What? When did that happen? And so I looked into it and that was part of yep. the same bill and stuff like that. So it was kind of fun to talk to the kids too. like, you really have to read through this stuff because just the titles or whatever is not adequate to make the campaign finance reform where they. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So Oregon, for the first time, is limiting the uh, amount of contributions, allows laws limiting political uh, it allows laws to do this. It doesn't do this. Uh, limiting political campaign contributions and expenditures requiring disclosure of political campaign contributions and expenditures. That uh, one's fascinating because look, while you have that out, look look at, so there's like two or three pages of like in favor, which is like yep. everyone in the world. And then there's like six pages of in opposition. And yep. tell me what, tell me uh, something that you notice about all of those ones in opposition. Um, um, pop quiz hot shots yeah. what is Todd driving at yeah are these all organizations that uh, well uh, look each each one has an attribution of, of who submitted it so uh, we'll make sure I'm looking at the right one here yeah so 107 and so the campaign um, finance support argument in favor argument in favor and so then, those are all from different from different organizations are the in yep. favor. Now, when you get to the in opposition, what do you notice? Um, <laughs> that there's a big walls of text. Yes. And they're all submitted by the exact same person. Oh, I did not know that. Really? So there's like six pages of in opposition. Maybe not that many pages. Kyle Markley. 
Kyle and, Markley. Kyle and so Markley. I was like, who is Kyle, Kyle Markley? Markley? And so I Googled Kyle Markley. Kyle Markley, the one of the candidates for the Libertarian Party, who was a couple pages earlier, <laughs> which I thought it was funny because the boy, uh, uh, Devin and Michael, asked me, they're like, they were trying to wrap their heads around what libertarians are. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, you know, it always sounds, it always sounds good because, you know, it's hands off government. It's kind of, you know, make your own life and blah, blah, blah. But it just slowly descends into madness where they're like, <laughs> no public schools, no roads, no laws. And it's like, <laughs> and so it was so funny right after I told him that I was, I looked at that campaign finance and, and even that all his stuff is like, and democracy will go asunder with this law. <laughs> It's like <laughs> just insane. Uh, anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to drag that out, but I, th- I thought that was funny since you had that voting voting guide out. Uh, but I wanted to look a little bit more about uh, what that decriminalization of drug possession uh, is. So uh, voters in Oregon approved this, uh, the therapeutic use of uh, psilocybin the compound in psychedelic mushrooms that is responsible for the conscious oh that that was the other one if we wanted to legalize the use of uh, psilocybin oh right yeah nearly 59 percent of oregon voters approved measure 110 which decriminalizes all drugs in the state so decriminalization is not the same as legalization, but it's still a big deal. Uh, so now possessions of illegal drugs, including drugs like cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamine, will go from being Class A misdemeanors to Class E violation in Oregon, which results in a $100 fine or health assessment rather than jail time. Uh, however, manufacturing or distributing illegal drugs could still result in jail time. Um, so it also establishes the Drug Treatment and Recovery Services Fund, uh, which is funded by the state's legal cannabis program and uh, money, the money saved and no longer pursuing charges of those drug offenses. So that's another thing. Not only do all of these minor drug possession things just clog up the court, it's just such a money sink for everything. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping this this writes some of that. Um, and and so Oregon's decision to criminalize all drugs is a historic one, and it could have a serious impact on those dealing with addiction in the state. So interesting. Wow. Interesting stuff. So um, have you ever done magic mushrooms? I have not. I have not um, either. I've never had really had the opportunity but um, I mean, it was always like, that's just like doing acid and that's just like doing heroin. And it was like, your mind will be fried. And like, it's just, I have no other concept of that. And I have no place in which to feel safe right. in trying it if I was interested. You know what I mean? Right. And so it's not something that I was very curious about because like buying something like that off like a guy somewhere <laughs> is not very appealing to me. So. <laughs> Uh, speaking of mash- magic mushrooms, yes. uh, magic mushrooms could help treat depressions. So researchers from Johns Hopkins Medicine found <laughs> that about half the patients in their study saw relief after taking the psychedelic psy- psilocybin, according to the findings published Wednesday in their journal. The magnitude of the effect we saw was about four times larger than what clinical trials have shown for traditional antidepressants on the market. 
that's really uh, phenomenal. That's, yeah, that's crazy. Uh, uh, there were 24 participants in the study, all of whom had long-term history of depression and were given two doses of psilocybin over different periods of time. During their monitored trips, uh, <laughs> participants wore eye shades and listened to music through headphones while lying on a couch for about five hours. A By the way, sign me up for... <laughs> That for, for researching this. <laughs> a shockingly short amount of time to have such profound effects considering how long current depression treatments take. A week after their second trip, about two-thirds of the participants had an over 50% reduction in their depression symptoms. Wow. After four weeks, 54% of the participants no longer qualified as being depressed. Uh, because most other depression treatments take weeks or months to work and uh, may have undesirable effects, this could be a game changer if these findings hold up in future gold standard placebo-controlled clinical trials. So uh, it's far from the first study, but uh, more yeah. studies are going on. It's awesome. Yeah, which I mean, I've I've in the past taken, um, I think Prozac it was what I took, but I mean, even figuring out even like I was not on it for a very long time or a very high dosage or anything, but even finding the right one of those antidepressants uh. just takes forever and it's a cumulative effect. And so it's like what w was interesting to me is that they didn't just have uh, less depressive uh, symptoms while they were on it, but also after like much longer after they had already taken it like you'd think like oh you feel better as long as you're tripping but it's actually seems to do something internally to kind of fix some of the problems which is really fascinating it's not just a a medicine you take and then once that medicine wears off you know once the trip wears off you're back to square one right yeah that's that's phenomenal um, so promising yeah yeah totally um let's see oh in mark's favorite story and i i refused to click on this because of the thumbnail and the title and i i was kind of scraping need... scraping the barrel for news oh, that did not involve the uh election, election or anything but um i found this story it is a very it is a very visual story, so thankfully those of you who are listening do not have to look at this, but a photographer shares a picture of an eel burrowing out of a flying heron's stomach. So you can see the eel making a desperate bid for freedom by burrowing out of the stomach while in flight. So snake eels have hard pointed have a hard pointed tip on the end of their tails that they used to dig their way out of trouble. Uh, when they get eaten, they use it to try to burrow out. So this photographer was, uh, had seen this heron and he said, initially, I thought the heron was bitten on the neck by the snake or eel. So if uh, you can go searching for this picture and it is it, it, like picture a flying heron and then kind of with a snake coming out. Uh, yeah, kind of mid neck slash sternum. The gullet. There is just yeah, a gullet. There is just an eel coming out and like it kind of the one some of the angles it kind of just looks like you know they're tangled up or something no. like that and so the photographer thought it was something like that and or the the eel like bit the heron on the neck and when he got home he could see that the eel was coming through the neck and there are, are some other more close pictures 
of this eel just bursting how, out how, of, how, a fl- of a fly. Not this. This heron is not on the ground. It is like flying no, through the air. Right. It's it's like the the combination of of uh, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds and <laughs> Alien all in one. <laughs> Can you imagine if that land just landed at your foot? <laughs> just oh, so it's it a, snuck it's up an behind amazing... you and eel goes down your neck. Oh, I mean, to be to have something from inside you burrow its way out of nope. you nope. while you're still alive is nope. terrible. Yep. <laughs> so this poor bird, um, it said for exactly how long the hero, the heron remained alive is unclear, um, but probably not for long. <laughs> Obviously, they've never seen anything like this before. Uh, there was a fox who sensed that the animals, so there's a fox and an eagle um, kind of following the heron around because they knew that the heron was not long for the world. So The worst sequel to Forest Warrior ever. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> <laughs> the, oh, the forest fox, warrior. eagle, heron. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so on to other news. Uh, Pittsburgh scientists unveil potential powerful treatment for COVID nineteen using llama nanobodies. <laughs> so uh, uh, researchers at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine say they found a new way to. Extract tiny but extremely powerful SARS-CoV-2 antibodies from llamas, which could be used to make inhalable. Inhalable. Inhale. (laughs) What is this word? Inhalable. Inhalable. Inhalable therapeutics (laughs) that could potentially prevent and treat COVID-19. Uh, SARS-CoV-2 is the name of this virus. Uh, sh- uh, the researcher, she, said, researchers turned to a black llama named Wally to generate the new antibodies. The researchers immunized Wally with a piece of the uh, the anti- of the spike protein from COVID. And after about two months, the llama's immune system produced mature nanobodies against the virus. They said the antibodies can tolerate being fashioned into an inhalable mist to deliver antiviral <laughs> therapy uh, directly into the lungs where they're most needed. So we could just spray America with this mist. We could all inhale llama. Inhale llama. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so could yeah, be a that's lot pretty cheaper, crazy. and yeah, it's phenomenal. And wow. and I read too that they're doing some research that good old aspirin might be um, something that's very helpful in the treatment of it too, which I'm sure pharmaceutical companies love, as aspirin is a generic and cheap medication. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's end on a charming dog story. Uh, this is from Rabbit Hash, Kentucky. While most Americans are waiting on the edge of their seats to find out who the next president is, this was written a couple days ago, clearly a small town in Kentucky can rest easy knowing who their next mayor is. A French bulldog named Wilbur. Quote, the town was always filled with dogs, so it was the natural solution, (laughs) says this small town in Kentucky. It was the natural solution, (laughs) you know, to elect one as mayor said Wilbur's <laughs> spokesperson and ham- handler Amy Noland. 
So there were 17, boy, there were 17 other candidates with their sights set on the title, including Jackrabbit, the therapy dog, and a donkey named Higgins. There was even a rooster campaigning for office. Uh, This year's election had the highest turnout ever, and Wilbur won 13,143 votes. So Jack Rabbit the Beagle and Poppy the Golden Retriever came in second and third. Um, Shortly after the election, Wilbur took to social media to thank his supporters. Wilbur, the French Bulldog, says, quote, I am humbled and beyond thankful for all the support from far away and right here at home, he wrote on Facebook. When asked how Wilbur took the news of his victory, Nolan said, quote, he rolled (laughs) over over with with excitement. excitement. Yeah, I heard that there was a scandal with the rooster. Oh. Yeah, he shared a picture of his pecker. (laughs) (laughs) Oofta. Uh, that makes up for the heavy tone of the opening. The, the, <laughs> we, we got a twofer this week. Uh, all right. Well, I didn't have a huge topic for today. I I was trying to figure out. I honestly didn't expect you to have time to do it today, so I did not plan ahead very well. And so yesterday when you're like, sure, I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, that's, that's okay. If we, and so if at we first, have a brief yeah. episode, I'm fine with that. So at first I was like, um, uh, actually Michael Collins brother, I was like, Oh, what should I, what should I do? And so he, he was like, Oh, do the story of the, um, the guy who they eventually based James Bond 007 on it. He was like the first spy and stuff like that. And I started getting into that and I wasn't like super engaged with it. And so then I moved on to Michelangelo and the Sistine Chapel. And I was like, well, this is too much. <laughs> I don't feel like right. doing any of this. And so I remembered that uh, one of our one of our listeners, Chelsea Heath, a while ago had sent me, uh, had messaged me a little story. It's a little bit too long for War of Wikipedia, but a little too short for a full topic. And I thought, oh, that would be perfect. And that is the story I've never heard of before of the Willamette meteorite. So is this something that you're familiar with? Not at all. Okay, yeah, good. I'm, I, yeah, I'm, I'm just Googling some photos of it. Yeah. And yeah, fantastic. Yeah, so in 1902 in the town of Willamette, Oregon, um, they found this, uh, what will become the largest meteorite ever found in the United States. So... Uh, the beautiful iron meteorite measures, it's super big, so it's uh, 4 feet 6 inches tall, 10 feet long, and uh, 6 feet at its shortest image. So it's kind of this oddly, kind of not a bell-shaped, but um, but at its, as it, at its biggest, it's 10 feet long. So it's it was not discovered in its original resting place. So at first, uh, this was found in West what is now West Lynn. Um, but since there's no, I mean, this thing is huge, and there's no impact crater of any kind anywhere. Um, so at first, they couldn't figure out what it was. So here's the story. So. Uh, Ellis Hughes, who lived in West Lynn near the Tualatin River, was out prospecting for minerals with a friend in 1902. Uh, his uh, hammer bounced off a rock and projected a piece into the forest and got a metallic ting instead of a rocky sound. Um, 
And so they were excited. At first, they thought they had found a, a new vein of iron that could make them both wealthy, uh, wealthy. But they discovered not only it was an isolated block, it was gigantic, and it wasn't on Ellis Hughes's property. Uh, they had kind of wandered over to the neighboring plot, and that neighboring plot was owned by the Oregon Iron and Steel Company. So um, the the uh, meteorite itself is more than 90% iron. So um, let's see, where just lost my place. Uh, so because uh, we live in the United States, wherever a meteorite is found, uh, it automatically belongs to the landowner. And so Ellis Hughes, who found it and knew he was on the property of Oregon Iron and Steel, uh, collaborated with with um with his wife and they decided that they wanted to move their uh, move it onto their property which is like three quarters of a mile away and if you've ever been in the oregon forest which i'm sure it was uh in west lynn in 1902 you will know trying to drag a gigantic <laughs> iron meteorite through 15 ton <laughs> through the wilderness is not an easy task so um the terrain was rugged and with only ellis and his poor 15 year old son and a horse he managed to steal <laughs> oh with a horse he managed to steal the great iron meteorite so he cleared a path to his property and had built a wagon as well as a capstan to move the object um, so he tried to keep quiet and he tried to uh, buy the land, but he wasn't able to do that. So they drug the 32,000 pound mass across three quarters of a mile of the forest floor onto his property. So uh, on a good day, he would move the mass only about 150 feet. And on a bad day, uh, it would be bogged down by the mud and uh, just getting the meteorite meteorite unstuck from the mud was a task that uh, was uh, took quite the doing. So after three months of work, the mass was finally over to the property line and on his front yard. And so he built a shed over it uh, and charged people 25 cents to see the space rock. Uh, because at that point, everybody had figured out that it was just a giant meteorite. Uh, so people from all over came to see the mass and Ellis and his wife were very pleased to make a profit uh, and even a scientist uh, authenticated it. And so, you could, yeah, you, uh, you've seen pictures at this point, Mark, but this thing yeah. is huge. So now that rumors started to spread and, and fame and infamy started to spread about this meteorite, uh, everybody started to realize that maybe it was stolen from the adjacent property because... Ellis did not bother to cover up the path that he had drug it through. So it's literally just a giant trench all the way from where it started to his front yard. Uh, so the company offered him a whole $50, but uh, Ellis turned it down. Uh, but then he would release, uh, receive a court summons to have a legal battleship over the ownership. It was him versus the Oregon Iron and Steel Company uh, who wanted it because it was uh, rightfully theirs. Uh, Hughes's only argument was that this meteorite was a sacred relic of the Clackamas Indians and it was no longer being used. So that made the stone private property for anyone to take. So he was claiming that because 
the uh, Native Americans used to worship it. It now counted as an object instead of a meteorite. Therefore, anyone who found it could just have it. So that did not work. <laughs> uh, courts, uh, courts awarded custody of the space rock to the company and valued the meteorite at $150, which even back then was a laughably low price for the largest meteorite ever found in uh, the early 1900s uh, in America. So uh, Ellis appealed the decision. And before the second court hearing, his other neighbors made claims that it was stolen from their lands. And so um, that was a whole thing. But ultimately, the court, the court decided that uh, it was indeed the property of Oregon Iron and Steel. So um, uh, blah, 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 blah. Oh, this is a little bit more about uh, when it was still in the in the in the ownership of Ellis. So it remained in its front yard and it was protected around the clock. Uh, because people kept trying to steal bits off of it, uh, and they would hammer at the meteorite. And but when they did, it would ring like a <laughs> ring like a bell. And there was a personal security guard, and that would just wake up the security guard, and he'd run out of the house with a gun. So the the um, actual court case went all the way to the Supreme Oregon Supreme Court in 1905. Uh, but when Oregon Iron and Steel finally got it, they were able to haul it up to Portland for the 1905 Lewis and Clark Expedition. Uh, and it was proudly displayed and drew much notice. So then it was purchased by Sarah Dodge, um, who I don't know who that is, must just be a private citizen. Um, and then it was donated to the American History, uh, the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, where it still remains. Um, they tried to sell it to the Smithsonian for $26,000, but the, um, the Smithsonian, could, Smithsonian couldn't untangle untangle some of the legal issues so um years later the descendants of the clackamas indians wanted their sacred stones of their ancestors returned and they struck this is so american uh they struck an, uh, a deal with them in the museum that um if the museum ever takes it off of permanent display they'll give it back but uh right now the local native american tribes uh call the meteorite Tamanawas, or Visitor from the Moon. Um, they came to an agreement in 2000 that the um, it could remain in New York in the in the museum. So, and uh, they can hold private ceremonies around it. Yes, they were also allowed nice. to do uh, private have private ceremonies around. I think like once a year, <laughs> they're allowed to look at the thing that they own <laughs> once a year in a place the white man owns. <laughs> so. Um, America. <laughs> so a member of the, uh, the state House of Representatives <clears throat> weighed in seven years later by introducing a bill that would demand its return to the state of Oregon. Uh, the tribe said no one had talked to them about that, but they were happy with that arrangement. Um, as Willamette Week put it in an editorial, neither the bill nor the 16-ton meteorite went anywhere. So yes, it still resides in, in uh, New York. So... I thought that was an interesting... Oh, so how did it... Uh, if there's no impact um, zone yeah. here, there's no crater and stuff like that. Where did it start? Yeah. Where did it come from? So most likely it landed somewhere in Canada during one of the ice ages and got stuck on top huh. of a glacier. Once the Missoula... Oh, that's another thing I was going to uh, talk about were the Missoula floods that kind of carved out this whole area of the country. 
Um, but instead, I just ended up watching this 20 minute long um, video, like beautiful video of this drone footage of all of the scoured out lands, like by Moses Lake, where I went this summer and like the Palouse and all over. And it's just this. It was so calming because it wasn't there wasn't even any music or anything. It was just these wonderful drone, like hanging, gliding drone shots of like landscapes. <laughs> it was so nice. Um, but yeah, it most likely was on top of a glacier that then was loosed by that uh, gigantic mega flood that scoured out. So that mega flood, which is still so hard for me to wrap my head around because that ice dam is so far away from here and like right the volume just trying to grapple with the amount of water that must have been in there and i think i heard somebody compare it to the size of lake erie and lake ontario combined so when all that water went out the ice went with it and eventually you know that meteorite was just carried all the way down the palouse and then through the columbia gorge Everything, I mean, the entire Willamette Valley was completely flooded over right. by that flood. And so it just ended up somewhere in West Lynn. And I think there, I looked at, I forget what church, there's a church in West Lynn that also has a replica. So I might try to hunt down that church. It's like the Episcopalian church or something like that. They Can have I a s- replica of the of the meteorite? I think so. Now what? I don't remember where I saw, where I, where I saw <laughs> that, but I will definitely... That's funny. Yeah, so I might try to hunt that. <laughs> hunt that. Can I see your? Can I see your meteor? Um. Anyway, so yes. Uh, thanks to Chelsea for sending that in. Um, it was fascinating because I'd never heard that yeah, before, and it I, was a, I hadn't either. A, yeah, a fun little story. And uh, if anyone else has little little stories like that that they want to hear more about, send those in because it's nice to have a pile of them to to pick from when I am too lazy to do a a deep dive on something. (laughs) Yeah. And if you ever uh, go to the natural history museum in, in New York city, um, you can check out a little piece of Oregon's history there. Yes. And I, it might've been cause I was in New York in 2013, I think. And I might have seen this not knowing um, cause I think it might be in the lobby of, of the natural history museum, hmm. uh, which I was in. So I think I remember seeing that, but not knowing that it was, uh, from here. So interesting, interesting giant. And then I was just trying to wrap my head around just how a giant chunk of solid iron <laughs> in the middle of space comes to be. And just like, right. uh, it's so oh, weird. It is fascinating. Wow. <sighs> Wow. Um, anything else? No, except that I am freezing cold and I realized oh, it's becoming right. difficult for me to talk. Let, let me check my temperature in here. Oh, it is holding steady at 62 degrees in my house. 62, so. cool. Um, well, I've got a little uh, oh, nice. little clip to take us out with. Uh, this is part of uh, uh, Alex Trebek doing some some uh, initial introductions during one of the episodes and is from Bowie, Maryland and her favorite type of music is something I've never heard of but it doesn't sound like fun. I think it's very fun. It's called nerdcore hip hop. It's nerdcore hip hop. Yes. Um, it's uh, people who identify as nerdy rapping about the things they love, video games, science fiction, having a hard time meeting 
romantic partners, you know. <laughs> it's really catchy and fun. Losers, in other words. Well, <laughs> Okay. Savage. <laughs> he was savage. That's, <laughs> Fantastic. That is amazing. So, well, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, thanks, Mark, for making the time. Uh, I will talk to you, I guess, again at some point. Uh, Indeed. I'm around, and as are you. I am uh, too. All right. Talk to you later, everyone. Okay. Bye bye.